0: Would you join me in taking your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, please? Matthew 17. Today we continue through our series, A Big Deal, and today's journey is through a text that honestly I have been excited about since Monday. Monday morning, my routine is to dig into the text for the next week and uh, to begin thoughts and prayer on that text, and uh, I have been asking the Lord to direct this message today to be one that would be... Uh, of impact to our hearts. You know, every, every week, our desire as a church body is as we come and we participate in worship as well as connection and fellowship together, you who are going to our connection classes are being taught and being discipled. And then we come together here in this setting and our desire would be that the word of God would be powerful and alive and that nothing is said that would be distracting or that would cause us to miss out on what God wants to teach us today. And so as I've been praying all week, this is a message, though, that I am more excited about than I have been in a while, and I'm not sure why, except for maybe when we get to the concluding thought, there's a lot of things that personally God is working in my heart, and maybe that's where the joy overflows, and uh, why I'm excited to share it with you. But God has uh, taught us in the last two weeks, through His text, of taking small, insignificant things and using them to make a big deal Two weeks ago, we looked at the small lad with his lunch that he brought of five loaves and two fishes. Jesus took the, the lunch, he blessed it, he broke it, and he performed a great miracle of providing for that day. Something that we learned that was small and insignificant, that looks like it can't make much of an impact or a difference, God takes and uses it because it can be a big deal. Last week, we looked at a completely different scenario with the man Elijah. Elijah, a prophet of God, was having a really high moment in his life after being... Uh, there on the mountain, defeating the false prophets of Baal. But then he found out that the queen wanted him to be dead and was going to use all of her forces to come after him. So he became very depressed in despair and discouragement and even requested for God to take his life. He wanted nothing more than to die. And that's when God came to him and used a still, small voice to make such a powerful impact. And we see that what happened in his life that day was God brought him and gave him a proper viewpoint, a proper focus, and pushed him back toward the mission and led him to where God's will was for his life. And it became useful for God's work. Well, today we continue this thought of looking at small things and how God makes a big deal about them. So the remarkable story is found here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 17. It's also recorded in Mark chapter 9 in Luke chapter 9. And Jesus is coming off of a mountaintop experience himself. He is coming off of the mountain where he had just spent time with his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. And the transfiguration of Jesus Christ has happened here at this moment. While on the mountain, this transfiguration happened, and they come off of the mountain. And Jesus, they came down from the mountain. Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man. Until, God, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Well, Peter and John would later record this after Jesus had died and come back to life. And John, in John chapter 1, would say that we beheld his glory. Peter would write that he, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So that kind of sets the tone and sets the stage for what we are getting ready to study as Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming off of this amazing experience on the mountain. When they come off of the mountain, a crowd of people are there awaiting for Jesus, a very familiar scenario for Jesus, as we see that often happening. And Jesus enters this scene of great spiritual conflict and intense disbelief. This spiritual conflict, this intense disbelief, is something that Jesus is going to work through, he's going to handle, and he's going to be the answer for. So this morning, instead of reading the entire text that we're going to study, I would like to go small section by section as we study it. This morning, I want to look at the tiny game changer. The tiny game changer. The small insignificant that God takes and makes a really big deal about. So, Father, I want to ask you to guide our time together this morning. You have prepared our hearts through worship The music has certainly brought our attention to you and to your glory. And so now, as we open our ears and our hearts, our minds to be attentive to your word, would you free us from distractions, distracting elements of thought, distracting elements of um, things around us that are happening? Lord, would you help us to hone in on what you would have for us today? If there's anybody here today that doesn't know you as their very personal savior, But something today, show them the faith that they can have in receiving your amazing grace, the eternal salvation they will receive. For the Christian who's here today, would you guide our thoughts and give us wisdom and that you would give us your message today in Jesus' name, amen. So all through the Bible, we see a number of of game changers starting all the way from the beginning in Genesis, we know that there was a man by the name of Isaac. He was born to some really old parents, Abraham and Sarah. And through Isaac, the Jewish line, the Israelites, would come and become a generation of people. And that happened as a game changer through Isaac. In the book of Exodus, there was another game changer. There was the burning bush. God spoke through the burning bush to Moses took Moses as a shepherd from the backside of the wilderness and called him to go into Egypt face-to-face with Pharaoh and rescue God's people out of slavery. The burning bush, Moses, both game changers in that story. Then we would find that there was another shepherd boy. His name was David. David would square off with the enemy of God, 10-foot giant named Goliath. David came prepared, took five smooth stones, put one of those stones in his sling, and he took out the giant and that little sling, that little stone, became a game changer. Samson's hair was a game changer. Esther being put on the pa- in the palace on the throne as queen, game changer for God's people. There are things in the New Testament that we see a man by the name of Peter. He, became, he was a fisherman, became a disciple. There was Matthew. He was a tax collector. He became a disciple. Both those men threw away what they were doing, walked away from it, and followed after Jesus. The voice of Jesus said, follow me, another game changer. There's just powerful words all through the Bible that are game changers. There's love, grace, and forgiveness. There's peace, endurance, and faith. All of these are game changers. Now, I think we get the point. I think we understand what a game changer is. And this passage here, Matthew is going to record a very tiny game changer that is going to make everything a big deal and make it right. In verses 14 through 16, would you look with me in Matthew chapter 17, the story that we begin with, after their coming off of the mountain, when they were come to the multitude, there came to him, to Jesus, a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, "'Lord, have mercy on my son, "'for he is a lunatic and he is sore vexed. "'For oft times he falleth into the fire "'and oft into the water. And I brought him to the disciples, and they could not cure him. The first thing that we see in this story is the very overwhelming reality. This was a very desperate situation. Mark would tell us in his gospel that the crowd was a bit surprised to see Jesus, but they were also excited when he arrived, as they would run to him to see what he was going to say next or what he was going to do. There was no one more relieved to see Jesus than this father that is recorded here in Matthew. This father of this poor, hurting boy. This boy, no doubt, was in trouble. He was in great danger. You see, he was a lunatic and sore vexed, as the passage tells us. Now, some of you are probably even sometimes at your wits end calling your own child a lunatic at times, acting crazy. But there's more to this when he says that my son is a lunatic and sorely vexed this word lunatic means that he was moonstruck he was having seizures or possibly other convulsions that were taking place with him physically this would have believed to be affected at the time by the phases of the moon and and uh, their their medical journals did not report a lot of history of these moments of how it were to be dealt how it was to be dealt with and how it was was happening and so this is not just simple demon possession. You say simple demon possession, but often we would find that these two go along in thought. The other time in the New Testament that this word lunatic is used in the original language of the Greek is, is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, and it said, And his fame went throughout all Syria, Jesus, that's him, and they brought unto him, unto Jesus, all the sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with the devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. So the boy, we're going to come to find out, has not only a demon possession, but also he has this this, uh, physical condition that is causing a lot of things to take place. Mark would tell us in his gospel that Because of this, he was deaf, he was mute, he could not hear, he could not speak, and that he would fall to the ground foaming from his mouth. And then the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke would record that the boy would scream and and that he would go into these convulsions as he would scream out uncontrollably. Now, while some of these symptoms are certainly natural causes, this boy was at the mercy of a demon as well. We find here that the father says not only is he a lunatic, but he is sore vexed. That means he is extremely suffering of emotional pain. This poor boy is going through a lot in his life. This is something that is heavy. Matthew would record that... This, he became suicidal because of this, throwing himself into flames to burn himself and into the water to drown himself. And as a parent, this had to be hard. This had to be devastating. This was something out of his control. He wanted so desperately to find help for this boy. So the overwhelming reality was that the boy and the father had a great need that day. But here's the very sad statement in these verses. Look at verse 16. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. His father had begged the nine disciples that were remaining from the inner three that were on the mountain, the nine that were back, and these men, were, they were looking to help the boy, but, but they could not. They just could not help him. Now, the task at hand was one that these nine disciples had been equipped by God to be able to handle. You remember in Matthew chapter 10, just a few chapters back in verse number one, and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, when Jesus had, he, Jesus, gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. So, if we read verses 14, 15, and 16 and come to the conclusion with the overwhelming reality that the disciples could not do anything about it, we would say, well, I'm with them. I mean, yeah, there's nothing to be done. But Jesus had equipped these men to be able to do this. But something was missing the mark. The reality check here is that sometimes Jesus' followers fail, but Jesus never fails. So we think that we've got all the equipment we need and all the abilities to function and and make things happen, and yet we fall short, we miss the mark, or we don't accomplish what we thought we would be able to do. And the reality, just the reality is, is that we are are failures. We, We are going to fail at times, but Jesus will never fail at the task. And so the man was wise for going straight to Jesus when his followers failed, Now look what happens as the story progresses in verse 17. So Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, the demon, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Here is the missed opportunity. You know, really, their failure was, in fact, good for them because it taught them a few things. When we look at this failure, it taught them to to not get into the rut of mechanical ministry. You know, sometimes we fall into the rut of getting into mechanical ministry because we're doing the same thing week in and week out that we've done for the last 20 years, and it's become such a routine to us that there's no heart and passion behind it. It's just all outward activity and function. And sometimes we will hurry in as we herd into the worship service. We sit down and we wait and we go begin the service. And this is something that maybe you have been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. And, and then so songs begin to sing and, and you just begin to go through the routine and you're in a, a rut of mechanical ministry. Or maybe you're laboring in God's work, and instead of finding passion behind it, it's just something that you dread every Sunday because it's become a rut to you. So the disciples here are going to learn a very important lesson. Because it's not as if the disciples have always faced this. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called them in, equipped them, and sent them out. The disciples have no doubt faced scenarios like this. They have cured people, they have cast out demons, they have done the work of the ministry, and now when they come to this point, there's something that is missing. There is a missed opportunity, and what they had to learn was there was a rut of mechanical ministry that was causing them to miss the mark, and then it also reminded them the great superiority of Jesus Christ. It showed them that their dependency does not come on their past or their experiences or their own abilities, but the superiority is always going to be in Jesus Christ alone. We sang the song, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. We sang the song that it is Jesus who saves. It is because of Jesus' finished work on the cross that we can have eternal security and eternal salvation through him. And so it reminded them of the superiority of Jesus. But it showed them... To wish for the presence of Jesus. It it caused them to long for the presence of Jesus. Jesus was on the mountain and the nine disciples were here. They were handling the crowd. They were doing things and they were doing ministry. But they needed to long for the presence of Jesus to be with them. And then it guided them to come to Jesus with the problem. Instead of going to one another, instead of finding Peter, James, and John, which would have typically probably been some of the leaders among the disciples... These men went directly to Jesus. So the priority was going to always be going to the source, to the true source, the one who will not and cannot fail. And so, surprisingly, the disciples, they were confused by their lack of success, not their lack of faith. That's an interesting conclusion for these disciples. Because they they were dumbfounded by the fact that they did not succeed in this opportunity. And their minds never went to the very fact that they had failed in the area of faith. And so they would soon find out what was the missing game changer here in this situation. The failure shows a lack of faith that can can keep even a God-given authority from accomplishing its work. By the way, church, let's never try to labor and to do the work of his ministry apart from God. Let's never bank on our experience or our past. Let's never rest on our own knowledge or understanding. Let's always be guided by God's wisdom, led by the Holy Spirit, and find ourselves in his peace. Because when we're enabled by that, we know we're doing that which is right and that which will accomplish the greater work. So the disciples represented an unbelieving and depraved society, or an unbelieving group. Jesus looks and says to them, oh, faithless an unbelieving and perverse generation, this is a group of spiritually deprived people. Why? At this moment, the disciples were looking to something else. Warren Wearsby says, their unbelief and spiritual perversity were a burden to him, to Jesus. What must our Lord feel as he looks at the powerless believers Today, uh, these were his followers, his disciples, his friends—the people he spent day in and day out. He's poured into them, and he looks to them with this thought of, "Of oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me." You know, we look at our own lives, and sometimes we're quick to complain to God as if He's not doing anything in our midst. And we are a faithless and perverse generation. We fall into the trap that begins to complain to God that nothing is happening. We are quick to judge without righteous cause. We are quick to be distraught at the lack of success while blinded by the own lack of faith in us. We are consumed by our own unbelief while missing completely the opportunity that God is putting in front of us to do something amazing. I mean, that happens in our life every week. Where the lack of faith is what is, becomes our downfall. And that's when we begin to question God. And we think that there's something that should be greater happening. There's something that should be a, a more amazing happening in my life. And we begin to question God of His direction or His path or the decisions for my life. And that comes out of a faithlessness. That comes out of a distrust It comes from an unbelief within us. Jesus then will cleanse the boy from the demon possession, and the Bible tells us that he heals the boy. Verse 18, the boy was cured. It suggests that a physical disorder was there, and it was involved as well as a demon possession. And both of these things were taken care of by Christ. Now, after Jesus helps the boy and he gives him back to his father, the disciples get alone with Jesus and ask, Why could not we cast him out? So, in verse number 19 and 20, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. So the game changer here in verse number 19 and 20, the disciples ask the question, why could we not do this? And we have to kind of back up and say, disciples, do you really want to know? Do you really want to ask that question? Christians, when you ask God why, do you really want to know why? We say, why did this happen? Or, or why is this my scenario? Why is this my case? Why is this my lot in life? We say, why won't anything better happen for me? Why won't you provide for this? Why do you work so slowly in my life? And some of those questions we have asked before. Some of us are there right now asking those why questions. And it's not necessarily bad that we're asking the why question as long as we're prepared and ready to hear the real answer. Because I think sometimes when I ask my questions of why, I want a big explanation of God that really points all of the blame on him. And I think that's why the disciples wanted that. Why couldn't we cast out the demons? Is it because Peter, James, and John were with you on the mountain and not here with us? Is it because you didn't fully equip us? Is it because you wanted us to learn some hard lesson? In the Gospel of Mark tells us that there were scribes around, so these religious leaders that were totally against what the Gospel was trying to do. And when they f- saw the failure of the disciples, they began to mock, they began to question. And this became a very chaotic environment where the disciples are working so hard to do right and, and, and the scribes are mocking them, the crowd's bystanders like, what is going on? And Jesus encounters this moment of great conflict, spiritual conflict, and unbelief. And so when they asked the question, the answer was very simple. And sometimes we have to open our ears big enough to hear the answer. And Jesus simply said, because of your unbelief. Now Peter has heard this answer before. Peter, James, and John, remember, they come off of the mountain and they're probably trying to process everything. They're watching Jesus do this amazing miracle. Peter's probably just glad that he's not the target of Jesus' rebuke that's getting ready to come right now. Mark it down, Peter. You finally spared yourself one. But as Jesus rebukes the disciples about their unbelief, flashbacks are coming into Peter's mind. He remembers back in Matthew 14, walking on the water, taking bold steps of faith. Nobody else would have gotten out of the boat and walked toward Jesus, but as he took bold steps of faith and walked towards Jesus, he became distracted by the overwhelming waves, the wind, the noise, the the water, and everything that was mind-boggling to him, and he took his eyes off of Jesus. He began to sink. Jesus reached down, brought him up, and, and what we find there in verse number 31 is his response, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Where did you doubt? Little faith. Mark chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. This is the same story in the Gospel of Mark. The Father is come to Jesus, and he is asking him to happen. Jesus responds to the Father, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, flowing down his face, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. So many of us in here would be able to say, I believe. I I, I do believe this is possible. Uh, We believe in God. We, We know he's real. We know he's sovereign. We know he's in control. And we want to find security in the very fact that we say, I believe. But there's always still that part of us that is a natural pull that says, I still have some unbelief. Anybody ever want to protect yourself and so you don't become so fanatic about something or confident in something? Something begins to unravel in a good, positive way, but instead of giving your hopes into it, instead of getting excited and confident in it, there's a little something that still says, something's going to go wrong here. I'm not putting all my eggs in this basket. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to get my hopes up. We always tell the girls, Daddy, can we get ice cream tonight? "Eh, Maybe, but don't get your hopes up, right? That's always our escape route until I'm craving ice cream. It's like, yeah, sure, let's go. (laughs) Yogurt Mountain, all right? So there's that element that says, I believe, but then there's that nagging effect that keeps pulling us back that says, I've got so much unbelief and uncertainty, that's where this father was. He said, I I believe. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe, but, but if there's any part of me that has unbelief, I want you to help me with that. Now, this verse here, we know that sermons and sermon series have been developed on verse number 21, the faith, the size of a mustard seed, and it's not where we're going to park for a long time today. But when you see verse 20, you see that this tiny game changer gives us two ideas. There's the size, which is little faith, and there's the life, which is a growing faith. The size of a mustard seed is tiny. We know that. We could have illustrated by giving everybody a seed today as you walked in and you would, you would drop it and lose it and you'd never see it again because the size is so tiny but then if it was to be planted, watered, and nurtured, it would grow into great, massive, changing substance. And so that's the example that Jesus is using here. He says sometimes it's a little faith, but it has to always be a growing faith. That living faith has to be nurtured. It has to be invested in. It has to be poured into so that you can watch it grow and develop and become fruitful. Now Jesus is not telling the disciples here to have this faith that can literally remove a mountain from one place to another. This would have been a familiar phrase that the Jewish people would have used often about having the ability as they would teach and as they would encounter uh, opportunities for guidance from the scripture And they would use this phrase as removing a mountain, as removing an area of difficulty in our lives. We all have mountain experiences that are major roadblocks in front of us. And nobody has yet built the tunnel that's going to help us to maneuver through the mountain. And so the difficulties that come into our life, Jesus is reminding us that the small faith, the living faith, the nurtured and growing faith is what's going to help us to look at the difficulty and say, get out of my way difficulty because with my belief, I know God's gonna do something great through that mountain experience. That's the kind of faith. Now the disciples debacle here, they did not come because of their, that their faith was small. It's not that they're, they, fa- they did not fail because their faith was small. The missed opportunity happened because of no faith. So Jesus uses this example of the mustard seed. And tonight we'll study a little bit more from a different text on the area of faith. And looking, as, as Hebrews tells us, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen and we know that this faith is what fuels the gospel, and it, and it brings us a place of acceptance and believing. And so faith is, is, is powerful. And in, what we're reminded in this text is that it's small, it's tiny, it's living, it's nurturing, it's growing. But this living faith must be nurtured. And when we look at what is next in verse number 21, this truth bomb that Jesus finishes the conversation with is what has stirred my heart all week and I have been eager and excited to tell about. In verse number 21, he says, "Howbeit, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. In the gospel of Mark, Mark would end his story in Mark chapter nine with the same phrase, the same statement by what Jesus said. That This fuel of our faith is going to come by prayer and fasting. Now this week as I was studying this passage on faith, I thought much of the sermon we would concentrate on faith. We would use great illustrations and stories of mountain-moving faith. We would talk about experiences that have happened and what is ahead of us as a church and what is ahead of us as a a body and individuals and how we can conquer it through the mustard seed faith. But then it all came to head on Wednesday. Wednesday, as I was digging into the text and studying, I thought about the many headlines that are, are throughout these verses. There's a lot of headlines that get attention, and there's a lot of things that, that uh, grab us, and we study, rightfully so, in the text. I've always thought that the mustard seed was the catch-all to this passage, and it's where it should be honed in on, and the concentration and the bulk of the time together. And then I thought, well, if this is a faith thing, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I look and I say, I'm a pretty positive guy. I'm pretty optimistic, sometimes to a fault. And and I think I could, uh, as I was studying in my office, I thought, well, this faith thing is, is, is this something you just put into action? So I'll walk over to the church building and I'll walk through the construction process and I'll look at it and say, yeah, this thing can be paid off in a couple of years, I could look at some numbers on paper and say, yeah, we're going to gain another 35 giving units this year to give towards the building project. Of course that's going to happen. God will make that happen. I could walk the neighborhoods as we did yesterday, knocking on doors, passing out invites, having conversations. And I could just simply say with a positive attitude and great spirit among me, I could say, of course I'm going to find somebody to lead to Jesus today, sharing the love of Jesus, the gospel message, and people will be saved. I could have this positive attitude about a Sunday morning worship experience and, and I could look across the crowd and say everybody will enjoy the worship service and, and of course that's a huge step of faith saying that everybody will enjoy but then side note but I could say everybody's going to enjoy the worship service they'll in, be in tuned and, and they'll be involved in the songs and the worship and it'll come out of a rightful spirit of ex- exaltation toward God and then I could say that even across the crowd that the, the power of the word of God will be preached and his message will be given to us and lives will be changed and and chains will be shattered. Those are all positive statements that can be fueled by a moment of faith. We all have those experiences. But then when I got to verse number 21, I thought, wow, this all changes. Because the focus for me in studying this was not on the mustard seed of faith. It was on the fuel that propels our faith forward. And he says, this comes by prayer and fasting. So I thought, well, that's just a passing thought. It will fit nicely into a conclusion, and uh, we'll wrap up our message with verse 21. Then I walked down the hall, and I got an update from Ramsey Kamar and Ramsey Kamar missionary in Jerusalem and he had sent out his new update and I'm reading through his update and it told me about how his ministry had hit a lull and he wasn't sure what was going on, decided to do some things different and then he decided to do a 50-day fast where he would fast all day long until 5 p.m. concentrating on prayer and fasting and then as we shared with the church family that just 10 days, 15 days in, they saw 14 people saved at their vacation Bible school and their teen rally. And seven of them were baptized. And then he said as the month went along, he praying and fasting, that they saw another 14 that were saved through some other outreach opportunities. And seven of them were baptized. So at the end, they had 28 saved and 14 baptized. He said it has never been like this in our ministry for the last 10 years and he attributes all of it to the time of prayer and fasting fueling his faith forward. So I thought, well, that's just a coincidence. I'll put that aside. I don't really want to think much more about that. We'll read the update. Church family will rejoice. We'll be excited about what's happening in Jerusalem. Well, then five minutes later, I walk down the hall again to get something off the copier, and I see Miss Mabel. Miss Mabel's reading a book that I had just given her, The Power of a, uh, the Power of a Praying Grandparent. And Miss Mabel is sitting there, and she says, look at this. This is something that just jumped off the page to me. And I'm thinking, well, what is it? I'm sure it's going to be a neat little story. And so she shows me page 188. I said, well, why are you on one pa- 188? I just gave you the book. Aren't you going to read it? She says, no. I was just flipping through it, and I put my finger here on 188, opened it up, and this is what I want to read to you. I said, okay, what is it? It may be that some relationships have broken down in your family. If so, don't blame yourself for that, and don't blame others either. It's a waste of time and accomplishes nothing. A breach in family relationships is a plan of the enemy. He hates families because they are part of God's plan for us, so he devises ways to steal ours. Forgive yourself and others and get to the business of a prayer warrior. Get to praying. If you ever feel hopeless or despairing about the broken relationships in your family, I want you to understand the power of what is promised in Isaiah 58. Mark it down, I'll read it to you. 58 verse 6 of Isaiah, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. The author concluded with another paragraph. This is what jumped out and I said, I've got to take note of something this week. What family doesn't need all of this? God says, fasting with prayer is one of the best ways to see powerful breakthrough in your family and in your life. Well, after 10 minutes of looking at a text and reading an email about prayer and fasting and then Miss Mabel showing me a section on page 188 that she had no business being on until she reads the other parts, (laughs) I said, God's showing us something that I have to share with you today. And so as we look at this, I want us to understand That this fuel of our faith is prayer and fasting. We show our faith in God and our reliance on God when we pray and we fast. There's so much reliance that we put on other things. All of us are familiar with conflict. All of us are familiar with broken relationships. Some of you are suffering through shattered families right now. Where is your reliance on? Where is it coming? So what are you going to do next? Too often we go to Facebook with it. Too often we go to emails with it, text messages, phone calls, complaints to others instead of bombarding heaven's gates with prayer and fasting. See, faithful prayer and fasting displays an earnestness before God that brings answers to our prayer. We often pray disappointedly, don't we? Almost asking God to care about something that we care little or nothing about. We look at circumstances and we think, really, there's nothing I can do. I remove myself from this, but at least I'll pray about it. And God, if you can take care of so-and-so, and and if you can heal this and do that, well, that'd be great. But we do it in such a way that is really uncaring in our own heart, and we expect God to be more passionate and caring about something that we care very little about. Spurgeon said he that would overcome the devil in certain instances must first overcome heaven by prayer and conquer himself by self-denial. This fuel to little faith is not lifeless. This fuel to our little faith is going to come and propelled by prayer, and it's persistent prayer. James said it this way, "...the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." The words effectual, dedicated, fervent, passionate, continuous, persistent prayer, that gets results. We may never know the fulfillment of the promises of God or the full gauge of God's promises. We may never know the full blessedness of God. We may never know the full rewards that God wants to give us until we learn to be persistent in prayer. More than half a century ago, George Mueller, the prince of intercessory prayer, began to pray for a group of five friends. Five friends. After five years, one of them came to Jesus Christ and got saved. After 10 years, two more of them came to Christ. So 10 years in of persistent prayer, three of his five friends came to know Jesus. He prayed for 25 years and the fourth man was saved. And for the fifth Friend that he prayed until the time of his death. And that fifth friend came to Christ a few months after George Mueller died. For that fifth friend, he prayed for 52 years. Perseverance. The question we have to ask ourselves is, have we bailed out already? If we bail out, we miss the power of God working in our life. Personally, I have a lot of things that are heavy on my heart that I'm praying through. And I look at those situations and I say, as I did a few moments ago, I've got the right personality to have a a spirit of faith. I'm not going to be too worried about X, Y, and Z because it's just going to happen. It'll fall into place. But that's not just a little faith. That's a dead faith. And the only way that it becomes alive and powerful is if I'm willing to be persistent in my prayers and willing to have self-denial to even fast over those situations. All of us in here have scenarios in our life that are very dear and serious to us. And the time has come where we quit just flippantly throwing them out on a prayer guide and expect everybody else to be pretty fervent and consistent with praying through those. It's time where we personalize it and say, I will do what it takes to have self-denial of fasting and fervent, effective prayer and expect God to do something great. It may happen in five months. It may happen in five years. It may happen in 52 years, as George Mueller saw. In your notes today, I've given some thoughts here of, of tips for all of us. I posted this a year or two ago in our Esther series and wanted to give, give it to you again and put it in front of you. As you look at fasting, pick something that you'll fast from. Not always is it your meals and food. Something time, sometimes it's other things in your life that are consuming you. You're consuming your time, whether it's your electronic devices or social media. For some of us, it is our meals or type of things that we do eat all too often that become very consuming to us. So something that is a sacrifice, don't fast from school, don't fast from work, all right? Those are not the ideas. Number two, set your spiritual objective. Why are you doing this? What area, what ways do you want to hear from God about? How do you want to hear from him? What are you looking for? Is it an issue in your life, a decision you need to make? Is it a turmoil, a chaos? Is it a fear? So set your spiritual objective then declare your dependence on God. You can do this only through him. When the nagging gets at you that you've got to get back to what it is that you have set aside, that's the time that we're to pray. Sometimes we think that just a few hours of fasting is going to be what it takes to set my spiritual objective and to gain some time with God. But what really happens is that our busy schedule just goes and then we finally get back to what it is that we've set aside. So do declare your dependence on God, declaring that you don't need this thing that you are fasting from, that you don't need it to find your fulfillment, but that you find your fulfillment in God. And then confess your sin and begin obeying. Start with a clean slate, a fresh start, a renewed spirit and a renewed mind. Confess your sin and then invite God to change your mind. You see here, we need to decide that this will be a time of growth and change. But also be ready, geared up, because the enemy is going to have his way of attacking. A friend of mine once told me that the worst argument and fight that he ever had with his wife was in the midst of prayer and fasting. Not that his wife is the enemy or a demon, although yeah, she's pretty close No, uh, But <laughs> we understand that the devil is going to use whatever tactics he can to distract and discourage us. And so here, make sure that you decide that this will be a time of growth and change. Invite God to bring you to a place of learning throughout this fast. Number six, commit to his will. So be willing to accept his will. Be willing to to accept his direction. Be willing to go what God is saying to do. And then it may not end as you wish, but commit yourself to finding peace in whatever and however he answers. And then last, number seven, trust him to answer know that he will answer, look for it, expect it, let it be known, and look and expect God to do something. That's faith. So the greatest game changer that many of you have ever encountered was the game changer of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born in a manger, born of a virgin. A baby changes everything, major game changer. But then that baby grew, became a sinless man of God, And that man, Jesus Christ, became the sacrifice for us. The cross of Calvary became a major game changer. And as Jesus died on that cross to take away our sins, today we can look to him with all hope and assurance that that free gift of salvation is for whosoever will call on the name of God. Today as we move forward from here, nobody in here is encountering a lunatic. Nobody in here is sorely vexed we all have our issues in life and the tiny game changer is that tiny small faith that Jesus says if you have the the faith as the grain of a mustard seed you can remove the mountains of discouragement and defeat you can move past the the heavy weights and burdens you are carrying and he says but it will be fueled by prayer and fasting so may we put to work our faith this week And allow that tiny game changer to be a really big deal. Father, thank you this morning for leading us in this way. And I I don't know, maybe this message was just for me today. Because this week has been a great time of study and digging in and then just of application. So I just want to say thank you for that. But Lord, of course, as your messenger, as your mouthpiece today, my burden and desire would be that it would go much farther than this pulpit that the message that you have given us would have fallen onto sensitive ears and sensitive hearts. Lord, I don't know the situations that people are encountering, but we've got to have that faith. We have to nurture it and grow it, and it has to be fueled by prayer and fasting. So may we be serious about it. May we look to see what kind of difference you'll make in our life when we're really serious about it. Help us not to just throw out prayer requests flippantly and hoping that everything will work out in the end, but help us to be very passionate about it. Help us to own it, to personalize it, to take it on, and to bombard heaven with it. Lord, in this congregation this morning, would you use these moments of consecration, time of application, the time of making us more like your son Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, Sir, ma'am, across this room, how does God use this message today? If you will say in joining me that God has taught you or refreshed your memory or at least rekindled a fire within you for something, I'd love to rejoice with you and pray together about that. And so as one hand's gone up, is ready and eager to admit that before God, would you join me today in saying, that's me, Peter. God is dealing in my heart with this message of tiny faith that would be growing, alive, nurtured, And fueled by prayer and fasting. I see many hands. Anybody else will join me this morning. Peter, I join with you in praying for this. For my life. That God would use it in an impactful way. God, you've seen these hands. And so now we need to take this moment to talk to you. And to have this time of of healing. This time of conviction. This time of commitment. So that we can go out from here and be better because of it. So would you give us that moment right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you talk to God? Christians all across the room, you raised your hand, talk to God right now. Whatever he's laying on your heart, the commitment you want to make, the decisions you will go from here with, take this moment right now.